Welcome to the Dear White Woman podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. And today we're following up on our History of Hate episode by focusing more on the KKK and how it appears in today's culture as well. Okay, now we get to talk about KKK part two. Uh, the second and third waves of the KKK being in power. And it really started again after it was shut down in the 1870s. It started up in the 1920s with massive immigration and World War I as triggers, right? Because 1890s marked the beginning of efforts in the Deep South to deny political, social, and economic power to Black people. Most segregation and disenfranchisement laws date from that period. <laughs> this was also the beginning of a series of lynchings of blacks by white mobs. So the combination of legalized racism and the constant threat of violence eventually led to a major black migration to northern cities. And I think what's important to remember at this time also is we started with the 1890s, but then moving on towards closer to the 1920s and the real revival of the KKK was a pivotal moment in cinematic history when in 1915, the movie Birth of a Nation, which mythologized the founding of the first clan came out. And I believe that there is actually discussions about making a very different version of it currently. But the original version in 1915 shows a pure Southern woman leaping to her death to avoid being raped by a black man. And the KKK step in as heroes. But so that was this portrayal of the KKK as this sort of the savior of the white race and of the white woman and of the white, the purity of the white woman. So there's a whole bunch of things wrapped up there. But then from there, the Klan learned marketing techniques. So the Klan wasn't just a hate group at that point. It was starting to become a hate group that was organized and looking to really establish its base and grow its base. So it leaned on a popular fraternal organization structure like the Freemasons. Belonging to a club like this was super popular in the late 1800s, 1870s onward, and in the first part of the 1900s. At its peak, it was suggested that as much as 40% of the adult population held membership in at least one fraternal order. That's right. a lot. That is a lot. I mean, it's not saying that they were all in hate organizations like the KKK, but in some sort of organization like the Freemasons, it was just a thing that you did. You belonged to a club. And again, that talks about that sense of belonging that's so important to humankind, right? What organizations do you belong to? I think, you know, my husband's from Canada and he always comes down here and he sees everybody with these college stickers or, you know, KU and Rock Chalk Jayhawk or, you know, he's like, I don't understand what this thing, this subculture is that you Americans all have the sense of belonging to your college. It's just not as much of a done thing in Canada. And we were talking about whether it's maybe the population, there's just less people in Canada. But the point of it is, belonging, especially in somewhere a country as vast and as populated as the United States, it's important, you know, and it's a question of what do we choose to be affiliated with, with the hate groups on the rise, like we talked about in last episode, there's clearly a gap of belonging and meaning in this country right now. I think that belonging for the KKK translated into a way to monetize the KKK. Because if you think about organizations that you belong to, a lot of times you have to pay dues. And the Klan really hit on this as a way to grow its power base. So in June 1920, with the Klan's membership at only a few thousand, the heads of the Klan signed various contracts, including one with a woman from the Southern Publicity Center. 
which gave them 80% of the profits, the Southern Publicity Center, that is, from the dues of the new members to the Klan. So basically, the Klan hired marketing and promoting, and they outsourced it, actually. They used an aggressive new sales pitch that the Klan would be rapidly pro-American and attempt to appeal to white Protestants, which to them meant rapidly anti-Black, anti-Jewish, and most importantly, anti-Catholic. It's As crazy, we discussed right? previously, right, I know, they stress its opposition to the alleged political power of the Pope and the Catholic Church. That's crazy. I mean, they really basically wanted to hate a lot of people, Asians, immigrants, bootleggers, nightclubs, roadhouses, sex, pre and extramarital escapades, scandalous behavior. I mean, it all of a sudden said that they were on this mission of social vigilance. And soon it, they had organizers scouring the nation probing for the fears of the communities they hit and really exploiting them. So, you know, in June 1920 was when they hired this marketing firm. Fast forward to the summer of 1921, nearly 100,000 people had enrolled in this, quote, invisible empire. And at that time, it was $10 a head, tax-free, since the Klan was a, quote, benevolent society. It was $10 a head to buy the standard white costume for 100,000 people. At its peak in the mid-1920s, so fast forward another few years, the organization claimed to include about 15% of this country's eligible population, so approximately 4 to 5 million men. That's frightening. That's a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, if you take a moment to process that, the Klan claims it's basically a 501c3 collecting dues in which you pay for your white costume of hate and they're monetizing themselves so broadly across the entire nation, if that's 15% of the nation's eligible population. Now, granted, that was what they claimed, right? So I will take it all with a grain of salt. But this was around the period that they started adding what we also know or envision as KKK, the cross burnings and the mass parades to intimidate other people. And so at this point, in terms of the target shifting, not infrequently, the Klan's targets became whites. Protestants and females who were considered immoral or traitors to their race or gender, right? I think you dug up this example of Alabama, right? Yeah. In Alabama, for example, a divorcee with two children was flogged for the crime, in heavy quotes, of remarrying and then given a jar of Vaseline for her wounds. So let's think about that for a second. Her crime was that she got divorced and then got remarried. And that's what the Klan was upset with. In Georgia, a woman was given 60 lashes for a vague charge of immorality and failure to go to church. When her 15-year-old son ran to her rescue, he received the same treatment. And in both cases, ministers led the Klansmen responsible for the violence. And this was particularly shocking to me that these incidences and these examples that we found didn't only happen in the South. There were examples of these in Oklahoma and even in California in this time period. So in a period in time when many women were really fighting for the vote, for a place in the job market, and for freedoms on personal and cultural levels, the Klan really went after those women. They went after women who looked for independence because they claimed to stand for, quote, pure womanhood. Oy, oy, oy. 
<laughs> Whatever that means, right? But the politics yeah. of the Klan, I mean, this is the time where there were so many people involved in it. And I want to go into the politics here because it affects something here where I live in Denver, Colorado, right? There's a part of the city that's named Stapleton. And there's a whole segment of the population who's motivated to change the name of this area within Denver City proper. The reason they really want to do that is because Benjamin Stapleton was the mayor of Denver for two different periods, so five different terms altogether. The first from 1923 to 1931, huge Klan stronghold. And then the second from 1935 to 1947. So in this book, The Hooded Empire, The KKK in Colorado, Robert Allen Goldberg, the author, writes that Stapleton was the Klan candidate for mayor in 1923 and won the election with support from the Klan. And he says that when he declared his candidacy for mayor in March 1923, he was Klan member number 1128 and a close friend of the Colorado Klan Grand Dragon, Locke. Now, keep in mind, we just talked about how many people were caught up in this fraternal organization, right? And it wasn't unique. In 1922, Texas sent Klansman Earl Mayfield to the U.S. Senate. Klan campaigns helped defeat two Jewish congressmen who had headed the Klan inquiry. Klan efforts basically were credited with helping to elect governors in 12 states in the early 1920s. That's an amazing political reach. Right? I mean, that's huge. And, you know, people are affiliated with political parties because of what it can get them to some degree, right? Now, There were rumors of his membership in the Klan during the mayoral campaign. He responded by denying he was a Klan member, and the voters believed his denial, and he was elected, defeating an unpopular incumbent, Dewey Bailey. Then, Stapleton appointed fellow Klansmen to multiple positions in Denver governments, though he did initially resist pressure to appoint a Klansman as chief of police. Now, fast forward into a little bit later, 1925, The power of the Klan over Stapleton was waning, and he ordered what's called the Good Friday Raids over the Klan police chief he had eventually appointed. And he wound up exposing a dozen Klan members, and he did declare his independence from the Klan by firing the police chief. After that term was up, where he got in with the help of the Klan, he eventually ran for re-election and won for three more terms a decade later. I mean, Stapleton is credited with making major civic improvements in Colorado during his five terms as mayor. There's the Denver Civic Center, the Denver Municipal Airport, which is what was named after him. And then the airport moved, but this area that used to be the airport is now called Stapleton because it used to be the Stapleton Airport. And then the Denver Mountain Rocks, including, I mean, a lot of people have heard of the Red Rocks Amphitheater. Stapleton was the city's longest running mayor. And so, as I said, the city of Denver named the airport after him. And then when the airport was dismantled and moved, the neighborhood that arose in place of the airport was named after Stapleton. And this is where the controversy is. People who live in that neighborhood will argue two different things. One, some people say, what does it mean to have a neighborhood named after someone from the Klan? And some would say that it reeks of intolerance, it supports hatred, it really, you know, makes it unfriendly and unwelcoming of a neighborhood for people to live in. Others people would say, well, we didn't know about the history about it. You know, it was just named after the old airport. I had no idea there was this history associated with the Klan. There's other issues to be addressed in terms of equality or tolerance that we could be spending our money and time on as opposed to renaming an area. And it goes both ways. I mean, I see both sides of the argument. I think the second would say that there's a slippery slope also of redressing history, just taking away his name and saying that they shouldn't be named. I mean, we were talking earlier about Robert E. Lee Boulevard in different cities, or how far do we take back people's responsibilities when they're affiliated with something 
and then changed their affiliation. And then on top of that, his descendants continue to live in Denver and serve as public servants. You know, his great-grandson, Walker Stapleton, was the former treasurer of the state of Colorado pretty recently. So I don't know. I think that it begs a question. It's a conversation to have. How do you erase any mention of anybody who's made decisions like this or who've been affiliated with groups, but then denounce them or take it back or walk away? What do you do? I know. I think that's such a tricky question because you're not that individual person, right? And we are in a time in history, which is past that time period. Do we focus our energy on redressing the wrongs and how, I think is really the question, right? How do we redress the wrongs and how is that most effective? Is it by renaming something? Is it by focusing on education and sort of looking forward to the future to make sure this doesn't we're not going to have another clan infiltration of elections or anything along those lines. I think it's really important to start talking about these things. Yeah, I think so. You know, I think going with that wave of history, though, if you look at the clan overall, this was in 19 sort of mid 20s that Stapleton was affected by it. The 1930s, the main group's membership had actually dropped down. I think, you know, they had said they had millions of people. They were down to about 30,000 by 1930 with pressure from outside, internal division within the Klan, and criminal behavior by the leaders. There was one of the splinter groups off of the KKK. His name was Stevenson, and he was convicted for the abduction, rape, and murder of a woman. And so that kind of made it a group that you really didn't want to be affiliated with that was not accepted in society anymore. Yeah. And I think that what I found amazing was that the formal end to this wave of the KKK didn't come through them disbanding because they thought there was a bigger purpose out there or that what their goals were weren't relevant anymore. It was actually due to taxes. It was when the IRS in 1944 filed a lien against the KKK for back taxes of more than $685,000 on profits earned during the 1920s. So I guess they weren't really a true 501c3. And also $685,000 in 1944, yeah. right? That's a lot right? of money. That is a lot of money. So basically, one of the Klansmen was quoted as saying we had to sell our assets and hand over the proceeds to the government and go out of business. Maybe the government can make something out of the Klan. I never could. So that was when the doors slammed shut on that second wave of the Klan. All because of taxes. That is interesting. It wasn't any moral change in heart. It was totally financial at that point, it sounds like. So let's talk about the third wave, because this is interesting and this is much more relevant to where we are now, right? Yes. I think the third wave, which you know, we've saw a lot of it basically in that period of time right after World War II, but in the post-war era, if you look at the social forces, just like in the Civil War that were at work in the United States following World War II, there was a new wave of immigrants. There was particularly Jewish refugees arriving from war-torn Europe. So you've got a group of people coming in that is a different religion than the base in the United States. You have a generation of young black soldiers who are returning home after being part of this army fighting for world freedom. In the South, you've got more union organization to attempt to address the poor workers. You've got migration from farms to cities. And then within all of that, you've got people who are upset about systems being changed. And a new Klan leader began to beat the drums of anti-Black, anti-Union, anti-Jewish, anti-Catholic, and anti-Communist hatred. 
So looking at this specific period in 1953, automobile plant worker Eldon Edwards formed the U.S. Klan's Knights of the KKK in Atlanta. And I think it's important to take a step back and note that the Klan as it appears today is actually, it's not just one unified KKK. It's important to know that we have not just one entity run by a sole leader, but at least four larger clan organizations. And we're going to talk about them a little bit going throughout. And we just started to touch upon that first one, but we've got the Brotherhood of Clans or the BOK, the Church of the National Knights of the KKK or the National Knights, the Imperial Clans of America or the IKA and the Knights of the KKK, which is the Knights Party, which was founded in 1975 by David Duke. And we mentioned him in part one of the history of hate. And this is what he did, you know, when he graduated from LSU, as you do when you graduate from university, you go and form a giant faction of a hate group. Yikes. And he's the David Duke who's run for what seems like a million political offices in Louisiana, right? This is the David Duke. So you're, you found a massive hate group and you run for political party. That's what we have going on here. Yes. So let's talk about some of them. And this first one that we're talking about, the one from 1953, was sort of the oldest of these four factions. So that going back in 1953, that automobile plant worker founded the Knights of the KKK in Atlanta. But he didn't really attract that many members until really the Supreme Court came down the following year in Brown versus Board of Education. So when they started to take away the segregation that's when the Klan really got active. Because again, you're looking at people who are having systems and privileges challenged. So by 1958, Edwards Group had an estimated 12,000 to 15,000 members. But by 1965, the total Klan membership had reached somewhere between 35,000 to 50,000 people. Wow. That's unbelievable what you just said about, I mean, it is believable, I guess, so I shouldn't say that but that it really was people's privileges being challenged. When you needed school integration, they were like, nope, we don't like that. We're going to go join a hate group. That's scary. Let's talk about some of the other groups. Yeah, so no clan group was more ruthless to have the title of most ruthless clan group has to be just unbelievable. But it goes to the secretive white knights of Mississippi. They were pretty small. They only had 6,000 or 7,000 members at its peak. But it still earned the reputation as the most bloodthirsty faction of the Klan since Reconstruction. So that's about a hundred year window, right? The White Knights committed many crimes during the 1960s, but the most shocking were the murders of one black and two civil rights workers in Philadelphia, Mississippi, on June 21st in 1964. So... One bombing also stands out in the history of the Klan and its fanatical fight against integration in the South. So remember, there was the decision, the Brown v. Board of Education decision, which was attempting to desegregate public spaces. And in response, on September 15, 1963, a dynamite bomb ripped apart the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, killing four young black girls. And this is the bombing, the Birmingham church bombings, which are widely referred to in a lot of civil rights textbooks and history. But this was really in a category by itself because it was so overt, so desperate, and it took the lives of four young girls. There was a movie, there was, I mean, there's so many things talked about this. I'm trying to remember where, like, there was a visual scene of this somewhere that I can't remember right off the top of my head. But yeah, that is, it's really well known hate crime. 
Yes, there's a lot. And Eyes on the Prize is a great documentary series that I think they have a whole episode maybe devoted to this. But maybe it was this church bombing, maybe it was an amalgamation of all of these acts. But these acts finally began to arouse public indignation in the South and across the nation. So in 1964, you actually had a silent counterattack begun by the FBI, and they made a major effort to infiltrate the Klan. I had no idea. Right? Me neither. And what's astounding is a year later, in September of 1965, the FBI had informants at the top level of seven of the 14 different clans then in existence. Of the estimated 10,000 active Klan members, some 2,000 were relaying information to the government. Wow. Can you imagine? That's one in five Klan members is a government informant. That's fascinating. Although the FBI did arrest Klansmen and prevented some violence because of this information, there's also allegations, though, that the FBI didn't really control some of the informers who may have been involved in illegal acts themselves. So they sort of, they were allegedly informing, but at the same time, they're going ahead to commit their hate crimes just like they would otherwise. Got it. Do we want to go into the David Duke stuff? I mean, I'm kind of like, do we need to know more about him? Because it's so scary. He's a former Grand Wizard of the KKK, right? He ran in 1989 and was in the Louisiana State Legislature. I yeah. mean, let's talk about this for a little bit, because I have heard his name, but I realized like it wasn't, I mean, it was a while ago, but it wasn't that long ago. And we continue to see things like this happen in politics today. Right. So remember, David Duke founded a branch of the KKK in 1975, right when he was out of college. So to keep in mind, we talked about a couple branches of the KKK. The two other large branches from the KKK that were formed were formed in 1996, actually. So not that long ago. But back to David Duke, after he, you know, made his career choice out of school known to be hate, he was a former Republican Louisiana state representative, which, you know, is astounding. But he was a candidate in the Democratic presidential primaries in 1988. He also switched sides, but was a candidate in the Republican presidential primaries in 1992, because, you know, if it doesn't work with one party... Why not just try another? But I wonder, that's interesting. Like, I really wonder either something changed in the parties during that time that I'm not as familiar with because I was way young and wasn't paying attention to some things. Or is this similarly parallel to, you know, if the targets of hate shift to you hate who you hate to get what you want and he was willing to play the game to get what he wanted. It didn't matter what party, same sort of MO, you know, like Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter. I just want to get more power. I wonder. I'm wondering the psyche behind switching parties because I don't know of, and I could totally be misinformed, but like how many other candidates regularly or flip parties like that? And I'm a firm believer in the option to change your mind, right? Like what I know today or believe today based on information I may get tomorrow, I reserve the right to change my opinion. But that's a pretty big switch within one election cycle. Yeah. And I think I have no idea how he ran as a Democrat. I just, I can't even wrap my head around that. So I'm also really curious. I have no idea there. But those weren't the actually the only two races that he ran unsuccessfully. He also ran unsuccessfully for the Louisiana State Senate, the United States Senate, the United States House of Representatives, and for governor of Louisiana. 
in fact, in 2016, I was in New Orleans when David Duke for the presidential election, but also when David Duke ran for Senate again. Didn't happen for him that time either. Phew. Okay, cool. And I think he got shut down again through money, right? Yes. In 2002, he had pleaded guilty to felony fraud and specifically by defrauding political supporters by pretending to be hard up for money and asking them for money to help him pay for basic necessities. Only he took their money and used it for recreational gambling, as you do, right? He subsequently served a 15-month sentence at the Federal Correctional Institution in Big Spring in Texas. He has also obviously spoken out against a whole host of things, what he alleges as Jewish control of the Federal Reserve Bank, the United States federal government, and the media. He supports the preservation of what he defines to be Western culture and traditionalist Christian family values. He also, not surprisingly, probably given his own experiences, wants the IRS to be abolished. He also believes in voluntary racial segregation, anti-communism, and white separatism. I wonder, you know, as we head into election cycles in the next, you know, multiple ones as we go forward, what do his like pamphlets look like, right? Because you look at candidate forms, you look at their websites, you look at that sort of stuff. I wonder what the coding is. Like, how critical is it that we all take that right to vote carefully and do our due diligence researching truly the background of people? Because he's probably not going to, I mean, maybe in this case, he's a very well-known prominent figure in the culture of hate. So maybe more people are familiar with him. But how many people don't have that banner and yet share these views and mask them using different terms? I mean, it's really important for us, I think, to do our research because you just don't know how many of these views are shared by other people. I agree. Well, and when I was in New Orleans for that election cycle in 2016, I saw the David Duke campaign commercials. And if you didn't know any of this history about him, he looks like a stand-up guy because, you know, he's smiling and waving and he seems like, you know, this wholesome dude on the TV screen, not to mention that he hates pretty much everyone who's not like him. Got it. Tons of, that's really frightening. I mean, I think that's, this is to say that, you know, the cycle of hate and the cycle of hate trying to gain more power through our political system does not stop. There's a lot of ruling by fear, a lot of instances of hate coming up over and over and over again. And I don't necessarily like talking about it each episode because it feels in some ways like it glorifies it. But suffice it to say, you turn on the news, you'll see all the time more and more of this. And it's so important to be aware of it, but still protecting ourselves emotionally from it and not getting desensitized to it because this is not acceptable. That level of hate does not breed a happy, healthy society. Right. And I think what we fall into if we don't discuss it is that this presumption that we're past it, right? And I think we've talked about that with other concepts as well. But I think that we are very much in another wave, if not this exact wave, because that was, you know, through the civil rights movement, we are now in this other wave of hate, as we discussed in part one. Mm -hmm. And I think... I was going to say that one of the things that you were saying that made me think earlier about it coming forward again, every time the KKK has come up in prominence seems to be when there's a huge wave of immigration. And what do we see in the headlines time after time after time right now? At this particular time as we're recording, it's all of the immigrants and the people seeking asylum coming up through our southern border from Latin America and Central America and coming up. And here's another wave of people seeking entry into this country 
potentially more immigrants. And there's a lot of rhetoric going on along with hopefully some real facts that are being shared. And the scary stats about hate crimes now, right? Brian Levin, the director of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at Cal State San Bernardino, he said that since 1992, there have been only four years in which hate crimes against a religion exceeded 20% of all hate crimes. Three of those four years were in 2015, 2016, and 2017. I mean, those are the stats that we have. So the last three of those four times where people hated people for a religion, for their beliefs, is happening right now. And so what will happen between the hate against religion and hate against migrants and immigration, I mean, we're setting ourselves up. We have to be very, very aware of what is to come right now in our country. I agree. I think that understanding the history and when these resurgences of hate happen is really crucial to being aware of what is happening and not just dismissing it or glossing over it. Because I think we saw this very clearly in 2015, after the white supremacist Dylan Roof shot and killed nine African Americans at a well-known black church in Charleston, South Carolina. We saw the KKK reappear. The loyal white knights of the KKK distributed Klan propaganda with bags of candy to front lawns in places like Alabama, California, Georgia, Kansas, and Mississippi. And get this, they had flyers with that those bags of candy where readers were encouraged to ring a hotline that saluted Roof, which said, we in the loyal white knights would like to say hail victory to Dylan S. Roof, who decided to do what the Bible told him. Wow. Right? A spokesperson, however, for the Knights of the KKK, also known as the Knights Party, she took a different approach, trying to distance the KKK from Roof's actions by denouncing him. She urged the media to be courageous and highlight the denunciation, claiming that the murders would be used to promote white guilt. So very complicated, but clearly there is a faction of the KKK that is very much alive, whether it's all four branches, whether it's one of the four, two of the four, whether it's branches we don't even know as publicly as those four. That's very prevalent. I mean, it's fascinating. I feel like there is, there's so many questions and discussions to be had. Like, do we continue to pay for the sins of our predecessors? You know, whether it's the Stapletons for political affiliation in the past, and I don't mean their current family, but just like the neighborhoods and streets being named after people. Is it for white people, reparations for slavery or for taking land away from Native Americans? Or is it more important to acknowledge it, state an opinion, make choices in our current lives that reflect our values, right? How do we process the evil that's done in the world? How do we stand firm and make a difference in our own lives and the lives of our children going forward? Because what we do now will shape the future that they inherit in this country, especially with something as prominent as hate and powerful as hate. I know it's such a tough question and such a multifaceted question because it looks at our history and how we move forward from there. And I think one of the things that we both believe is that education and learning and really understanding what the basis for hate has been in order to address the hate that is currently arising is so important. So in terms of what you can do after listening to this episode and thinking in your own life or what you might like to study further, there's a great PBS documentary on reconstruction 
made by Henry Louis Gates Jr. It's four parts. It's like an hour each section. It's amazing. You can read the Southern Poverty Law Center history of the KKK on which we based a lot of our information and facts from these two episodes. Read up on Reconstruction, read up on the Civil War, the history of the United States, and understand this history of hate. And then I think on a personal level, if you can think about what organizations you belong to right now, think about people in your life or people who you read about or organizations in your community that might be stirring on hate, how you might reach out, or people who feel alone or can be easily swayed, and the importance really of community and who we not just align ourselves with in a frightening sense, but who do we choose to spend our time with? What kind of conversations do we choose to have? Because that's, you know, learning can happen in a silo if you're just like absorbing the information, but so much of change happens with that moment that where you think about how that applies to your life and what you might do differently or how you might feel differently next time. I love the resources you mentioned me, Sasha. So I would love to share that if you guys want to sign up for our email lists or follow us on social, we can absolutely get those to you somehow through those methods. Yes. If you love what you're hearing, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review while you're at it. Also, if you're looking for some great email, who isn't, sign up on our website, dearwhitewomen.com, and get our weekly email every Wednesday that gives you special bonus insider tips. You can also find us on social media. Sarah, can you tell us where to find? Absolutely. On Facebook and Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast and on Twitter at DWW Podcast. Find us there.